Hello and welcome to the Eurasian Climate Brief, a podcast focusing on climate news in the region stretching from Eastern Europe and Russia down to the Caucasus and Central Asia. I'm Boris Schneider and joining me as usual are climate journalists Angelina Davidova and Natalie Sauer. As our time in Glasgow draws to a close, on this edition of the podcast, we're again continuing our special COP26 series, this time focusing on climate finance. Shortly, we'll hear from the head of the Climate and Energy Program at WWF Russia, Alexei Kakorian. He'll answer our questions about climate finance. Natalie will also have a roundup of the latest climate news from our region at the end of the episode. But before we hear from Alexei, the three of us have been out on the streets of Glasgow to gather our thoughts on the time we've spent here at COP26. We have to be honest with you, this is the first time Boris and I... Um, are around the venue of the COP um, and this is because uh, we weren't granted a media accreditation because the official deadline of the 30th of October to apply for one uh, was abruptly brought forward to the 8th of October. So I, Boris and many other journalists were excluded from reporting uh, on the COP and exclusion has unfortunately been one of the blemmers of this event. Um, many delegates of the Global South flew from across the world to come here um, and due to the site reaching capacity were told in the end to watch the negotiations um, from their hotel bedroom. If they were lucky enough to secure a hotel bedroom because as we know some people had to sleep in uh, I think gym halls or other public facilities. Some people also try to book um, accommodation in Edinburgh because Glasgow is just not big enough for such a venue. And um, at the same time, um, I was speaking a few days ago to a restaurant owner in Glasgow and he complained about the fact that the COP didn't push his business, that in the end the people who came to the COP, they stayed in their hotel rooms or at the COP, but the, local, um, the locals and the city did not profit from it as much as they were expecting to. Yes, I heard that was a taxi driver as well who was quite bitter um, because he was telling me that many taxis from London had been brought to Glasgow especially. They had brought an entire fleet of electric cars. Oh, wow. Um, excluding the locals. So, I mean, this is not verified. This is purely from a conversation I had with the driver, but certainly... Um, this impression of, of bitterness and exclusion has been hanging over this event um, throughout its entirety. But are, are there any positives that we can talk about to cheer up the Eurasian listener? Well, it's, uh, it's officially the last day of the conference. However, everyone expects it to last one or two days longer. This morning, new negotiation texts have been rolled out by the COP presidency and they look somewhat good, even though some of the expressions are still in brackets, meaning uh, they yet have to be agreed on by the delegates. So what we have, we have mention of fossil fuels, which actually happens for the first time since the Paris Agreement has been adopted. We also have mention of the fossil fuel subsidies, and uh, we also have a call to increase action on reducing particular greenhouse gases, including methane. So we got to see how that develops uh, in the next few days. Uh, and there's been a lot of progress on loss and damage, hasn't there? Loss and damage, um, maybe it's something which we also have to explain. Loss and damage means uh, climate-related damage, which has already taken place. 
uh, some ecosystems which have been lost forever, some islands which were suddenly to lose. So the ones that the local communities cannot really adapt to. Uh, and so um, communities, mostly from the global south, are demanding that uh, the wealthier polluting countries pay compensation to, to them for the irreversible climate damage um, which they've endured. And climate finance remains to be still one of the main topics at the COP. And we've seen a number of announcements of some very uh, large developed countries to the contribution into UN-backed climate funds like the Global Environmental Facility or the Adaptation Fund. The question is really, would that be enough? And also where this money is spent to? Does this money come as grants for mitigation and adaptation? Or does it come in form of credits? Does it come in form of private investment? Uh, there was a lot of criticism coming from the civil society side saying that even the money which has been allocated before has not been really monitored and verified properly. So we expect further commitments coming today. And actually, our guest on the program, Alexei Kakorin uh, from WWF Russia, will be talking about climate finance for countries of our region, uh, mainly the Central Asian countries. Just as we have done uh, throughout this COP series, we've uh, sought to bring you um, the most important topics of discussion. Um, we've talked about the phasing out of coal, um, about uh, carbon offsets, uh, deforestation. We've done so much, I, I can barely remember <laughs> everything. The, yeah. The yeah. Global... We talked, of course, about Article 6, yes. which is a very important article. Right, and uh, our latest episode was actually talking to Gilles Dufran from uh, Global Carbon Watch, and he was the one uh, demystifying Article 6 for us. Yeah. And negotiations around Article 6, that is around uh, carbon markets and carbon offsets, uh, is still going on today at the COP venue. So when do you think we can uh, expect to see an agreement come through? Well, my hope is that countries will agree on the final text tomorrow on Sunday. Which would be relatively early, wouldn't it? I hope By so. By comparison yeah. to previous COPs. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. having covered these for 12 years, I mean, I've covered them for nearly two years. You've seen COPs last forever and ever, haven't you, Angelina? Exactly. And delegates staying the whole night through and negotiations just breaking for two or three nights and people literally sleeping at the COP. Um, so we'll see what this night will bring. In the meantime, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for listening to us. Do get subscribed to our podcast on all available platforms. Uh, follow us on Twitter and Facebook and spread the word. During our time in Scotland, we've released six episodes of the Eurasian Climate Brief, covering topics as diverse as coal, deforestation, the protests in Glasgow and Article 6. This time we are adding climate finance into the mix and to unpack the subject we are joined from the conference center by Alexei Kakorin, who is the head of the climate and energy program at WWF Russia. Developing countries have hit out at the OECD definition of climate finance, which includes grants, loans and export finance credits from both private and public sources. I began by asking Alexei what exactly counts as climate finance. There are many definitions, to be honest. However, uh, it's more um, robust to speak about uh, needs of developing countries. 
and many countries, including Central Asia and Africa, they insist that total amount calculated is not so big matter. The main matter is amount of grants and amount of funds for adaptation. They search two parameters instead of one parameter of whole funding. And how important is climate finance for the countries of our region, that is Eastern Europe, Central Asia and Caucasus? It depends on country. However, in particular for three countries, the WWF Russia is working very actively. This is Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan and Uzbekistan. They are not ready to accept any credit, any credit. They have already a lot of debts. And even if uh, this credit is packaged together with uh, some grant, they are not ready to take it. There are already examples that countries accepted package, spend grant as soon as possible, and then give up credit. Some other countries, maybe Caucasus countries, uh, may be in a bit better positions. And uh, Ukraine is uh, even better positions because it's a large country and potentially they take credits. However, they are not like it due to economic reasons. Kazakhstan, probably the most healthy country of the former Soviet Union, they are ready to accept credit, but they have own money. Therefore, they will investigate parameters and uh, area of this credit, so which sectors, which projects, very, very carefully. And now that you've talked about uh, some of the credit uh, takers in the Eurasian region, who are the biggest climate finance givers in the region? Uh, Asian Bank is quite active. German Cli International Climate Initiative is going uh, and we uh, uh, already adopted some projects. It's, it's uh, million euro, millions. Yeah, um, Jeff, of course, Jeff. Global Environment Facility. Jeff doesn't work in Russia, but Jeff works in Central Asia. Yeah, it's quite significant donor. And Green Climate Fund as well, because at least Kazakhstan and uh, Kyrgyzstan are very active to cooperate with Green Climate Fund. And uh, are any countries of the region actually pay to UN-backed climate funds? I don't know. Uh, I listened that uh, symbolically some of them paid somewhere, mm -hmm. but I cannot confirm this information. I know that Mongolia paid mm -hmm. symbolically to express, uh, how to say, uh, understanding of situation. They paid, uh, uh, sure, they paid to get better back, certainly. And it's very, by the way, it's a very good question, and it's certainly reasonable to recommend to country like Kazakhstan to do the same. How it's, uh, anyway, it's not easy. Just one question to confirm. I thought Russia was actually paying to um, the Green Climate Fund, didn't, didn't uh, it? You know, Russia organized special trust fund with UNDP, United Nations Development Program. It's not large, but it has special climate window. They have uh, projects in Kyrgyzstan, in Armenia, uh, probably in Tajikistan as well, maybe Uzbekistan. Uh, in this project, uh, Narovit in particular for water management, survive, water supply, um, and some energy issues. However, it's not something large like cascade of hydro dams, but something small, but very important for living of rural, uh, rural people. 
And in general, what requires more finance? Is it climate mitigation or is it climate adaptation? Uh, certainly that uh, adaptation in majority of these countries. I mean Kyrgyzstan, uh, Uzbekistan and Tajikistan. Certainly adaptation. We are, we are very vulnerable, very vulnerable. Kazakhstan, mixture of the, the first and the second. Maybe even mitigation is more important for Kazakhstan. Speaking about Caucasus countries, I guess that Georgia and Armenia adaptation is the main, certainly adaptation. Ukraine is a large country, so it's certainly a mixture. And um, if we speak more precisely about adaptation, which area of projects are mostly needed, say, in Central Asia or in Caucasus? Is that water deficiency? Is that local infrastructure and uh, making infrastructure more resilient? So which areas of projects are mostly needed? Mainly water water shortage of water, water management, uh, link it with agriculture, and sometimes even link it with infrastructure. Yeah, and uh, and jobs, of course. It's it's big problem. So water is a key word there. Before this COP, there was lots of talk about the goal of reaching 100 billion dollars for climate finance from the developed countries. And now that uh, Japan has agreed to give uh, 10 billion twice a year for five years, um, U.S. climate envoy John Kerry has said that this puts the target within reach for 2022 or at least 2023. Um, how do you think, uh, how realistic are those figures, in your opinion? I think it's quite realistic. It's very large and very rich countries. Why not? Certainly. Uh, anyway, they have to um, keep in mind that uh, this uh, hundred, bi hundred billions uh, consists of three parts. One of uh, governmental funds or public funds, and Kerry and Japanese people spoke just about this part. Second is development banks, and third is uh, private money. And therefore, if they will consider uh, one third of public money, It's most deficit money, of course, because it's uh, best for adaptation and best for grants. These contributions of U.S. and Japan is quite significant, and, but realistic, of course. Speaking again about the region uh, we um, cover, and that is Central Asia and Caucasus, can you name, and also Eastern Europe, can you name a number of projects which have already been realized with the help of international climate finance, which you think are good and useful? and really contributed to climate mitigation or climate adaptation? Uh, I don't know exact number, but if uh, several dozens, could be large or small, different countries, um, I expect that it's from 30 to 50. Some of them were quite small or quite specific, maybe to enhance a meteorological service of Tajikistan, which is quite small, or, or on the other hand, some others, they're large, up to 100 million dollars for renewable energy in Kazakhstan, probably it's the largest. Armenia got quite large number of projects, but um, as far as I know, all of them are quite small. Anyway, country is also small, but it's, it depends on how projects are packaged together or each of them are separate. This week on Wednesday, two days ago, it was announced that negotiators had agreed on a deal at the COP um, to set up a network to help victims of climate disaster within a year. So they have agreed to set that up by the next COP, by the COP27 in November 2020. And what do you think does this agreement mean for our region? 
It's important for region as well. Yeah, especially keeping in mind that potential very serious disasters are possible. We don't expect some massive floods as in particular in Pakistan, Amur River Basin or, or Germany. Uh, however, it could be slides or it could be um, also some river problem in spring because you know that now glaciers are shrinking. Glacier is accumulator of water. And if glacier is smaller than before, uh, in spring you have very high water, very high and aggressive water, and then no, no water. They both are really bad for people. And just as a follow-up to that answer, um, which countries does this concern? Is it more about Georgia or does it concern Central Asia? It's Georgia... It's Armenia, it is Tajikistan and Kazakhstan. As a whole, uh, mountain countries are more vulnerable. At least these uh, countries of former Soviet Union, mountains is a reason of risk. Thank you so much, Alexei, for speaking to us. Uh, I would just like to remember that that was Alexei Kakorin, uh, the head of the climate project program at uh, WWF Russia. And Alexei, you'll be leaving COP26 soon. So what are you taking away with you? What are your main results here and the results of the COP? What is it that you find the most important? Yeah, probably in a global scale, in long-term long scale, um, statement of all large countries on carbon neutrality by certain date, 2050, 60 or even 70 as India, uh, uh, open to carbon neutrality. They have not that before Glasgow. Of course, it's so-called unofficial result, but it's very important result. This is positive and negative news. Positive that it, at last they have it after five years from the Paris Agreement adoption. On the other hand, this path is not two Celsius degrees. It's 2.5 or maybe even a bit more, maybe up to three Celsius degrees. Yeah. So it's positive and negative results simultaneously. However, I guess that at last now they have subject of discussion because just collective promise to Celsius degrees means nothing to discuss. But now they can criticize something. Before that, they cannot criticize Russian strategy of carbon neutrality because they had nothing about that. This is a very important thing. Uh, probably second, I hope that uh, mechanism of sustainable development will be established, uh, not established, uh, adopted as a rules, as a set of rules. It's uh, as I seen draft document. It's quite robust. I hope it will be as it is now, so it will be a robust document. And I pick up the main focus of countries on project approach. I mean, so so-called quota trading between countries uh, is very unlikely, very unlikely. It is not may, main trend, at least for next 20, 30 years, maybe in far future. But project approach, many countries stated that our companies, which they are supervisors as a, as a country, will participate in project cooperation and decrease uh, carbon footprint of, of any products, etc., etc., etc. So projects instead of global quota trading between countries. This is uh, a very important conclusion of the given conference. Thank you to Alexei Kokorin for joining us on the podcast live from Glasgow. 
Now let's take a look at the latest news from our region. Politico reported on the 10th of November that Poland could undermine EU climate legislation if Brussels does not approve its recovery fund by the end of the year. Efforts such as the Fit for 55, which commits the bloc to slashing emissions by 55% by 2030, are said to be particularly vulnerable to retaliation. Belarus President Alexander Lukashenko has threatened to block the transit of gas and goods to Europe. He's claimed he'll do this if the EU imposes new sanctions on his regime over the migrant crisis on the Belarusian-Polish border. Speaking on Thursday, President Lukashenko stated Belarus was heating Europe and stressed Minsk should not stop at anything to defend its sovereignty and independence. The Russian ambassador to the UK, Andrei Kelin, has denied his country lacked urgency over climate change. Speaking to Sky News, Kelin defended President Vladimir Putin's absence from the climate summit and said very important figures from the government and industry were in Glasgow to explain Russia's decarbonisation strategy, such as its net zero 2060 target. Europe's first modular reactor is set to be built in Romania, Balkan Green Energy News reports. The country's state-owned nuclear energy company, Nuclear Electrica, signed an agreement with the US-based New Scale Power to build a 462-megawatt nuclear power plant consisting of six small modular reactors. According to the two companies, the plant could be commissioned as early as 2027. The Climate Action Network, which comprises of over 1,500 civil society organisations in over 130 countries, ranked Serbia third in its Fossil of the Day award on Thursday after the US and Australia. The organisation hit out at amendments to the law on integrated pollution prevention and control in favour of large-scale polluters, especially with regards to coal-fired power plants. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a review and share the episode on social media. We'd also like to thank our supporters at the Battleground magazine. We'd love to know your thoughts on the topics we discuss in each episode. Get in touch on Twitter, where you'll find us, at Eurasian Climate. We'll be back in a couple of days with a new episode, so see you then. Bye.